Lord, we just continue in our prayer. That song we just sang to you as a prayer, listen to our hearts now. We do need you. Our one defense. Thank you for that time just now of reflection on your cross. You are our one defense. I have no other defense. My righteousness, it ain't mine. It's from you. Thank you. So, Lord, we, we, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your sacrifice. And we worship you. We simply say thank you. And it is in your name, in Jesus' name, we pray together. Amen. Amen. Church, why don't you go ahead and have a seat. Those of you who are joining us online right now, you're probably already seated, but I'm grateful you're with us as well. If you're in the room, I know you've noticed that we've had this fun out here for the last couple of months with a mug wall. And uh, if you're an extraordinary kind of person, this is your mug. I want to talk to you after service. Come find me. I want to put a face together with the mug. Hey, this is Father's Day. I know we already referenced it in the uh, service a bit earlier, but uh, dads... Happy Father's Day. I'm with you, my people. I love you. Uh, we celebrate you. Just grateful for who you are and what you do in your families. Dads have a lot of superpowers. I know we all know this, but there is one specific superpower that we want to lean into right now. Dads, we honor you with this. Check it out. Okay, dads, let's go ahead and get started, guys. Now, some of you have already let me know how uncomfortable you were in last week's meeting. So tonight, we're going to try to respect each other's boundaries. What? Tonight, we've also got a guest with us, David. And would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah. Um, hey, guys. I'm David. David. Hey, 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 hey. How many kids do you have, David? None. At least not at the moment. Uh, my wife is pregnant, and uh, she should be delivering any day now. That's great. Super. Awesome. Who'd like to go first? Anyone. Anyone. I'll go. Perfect. Todd? Yes. My daughter and I went to the mall, and she said she wanted to take the stairs to the second level. And I said, I don't trust stairs because they're always up to something. <laughs> Todd, I'm sorry that happened. I encourage you to try to resist the urge to make jokes like that. My turn? Can I go? Okay. Yesterday, actually, my daughter got home and she asked me how my day was. And I said, well, a guy tried to sell me a coffin, but that's the last thing I need. Oh, Jerry, Jerry that Jerry. joke is dead on arrival. Because it's the last thing I need. David, <laughs> how about you? Oh, I, I didn't, I didn't say this is a safe zone. Just jump on in. Yeah, I, I'm, I guess I'm just scared of being a dad. I'm afraid I'm gonna start telling bad jokes just like my dad. Well, it might be in our nature. We can fight against it. Hey, speaking of nature, I tried to catch some fog yesterday. 
I missed. M I S T. You're a monster. This is where the boundary is. I'm done. This is where you are. Hello? Really? Okay, yeah, no. Uh, yeah, I'll be right there. That was Julie. Her water just broke. I guess the baby finally ran out of womb. <laughs> I'm gonna be a dad. Don't you think you should be going? Oh, yeah. I told my wife she drew her eyebrows too high. She seemed surprised. Yep, being a dad is no joke. Thank you, fathers. We love you. We appreciate you. I, I got scared there for just a moment when that video didn't play. I thought I was going to have to bring out some of my best material. My kids don't want to endure that. Hey, this is uh, the series we're walking through, Mountains and Valleys. This is week two of that. We're trying to even it out, the highs and the lows. Let's get back to living on a level plane and, uh, you know, seeing what God has in store for us right now. What's God's baseline for today? Um, last week, I, I shared a story with you about a clown license plate. Perhaps you remember that. Uh, and I, I, I shared that with you, and by the way, that's still on my truck. It's parked out here in the gravel lot. If that's yours, please help yourself to it, because I'm just going to throw it away, because I'm not into clowns at all. Well, one of you grabbed me after the service and uh, said, I've got a joke for you based on clowns. And uh, this was not a dad that told me the joke. Uh, it was a, a female in our church. But uh, in honor of Dad's Day, here, here you go. Two cannibals are walking through the woods, and they see a clown. Let's pause right there. This has nothing to do with the punchline of the joke, but I enjoy hunting in the fall. I'm outside a lot, and people send me these videos. There was, uh, when the movie It came out a couple of years ago, some freak show was dressing up in a clown costume and walking through the woods in front of hunters, spooking their deer. Can I just say, um, that's taking your life in your own hands. Seeing a clown walking through the woods at dusk or dawn, uh-uh, I'm not into that. Okay, so two cannibals are walking through the woods, and they see a clown. Well, of course, they start eating the clown, because this is what cannibals do. One of the cannibals turns to the other and asks, hey, does this taste funny to you? I'll give you just a minute. Dad joke, that's a groaner. That's the punchline, but the next line in the conversation, that cannibal turns to the other one and says, of course not, because clowns aren't funny. They're just disturbing. All right, a couple of weeks ago, I was in a tractor supply store. As a dad, this is my right right? I love that place. I love everything about that place. I love the way it smells, right? You've got the smell of fertilizer mixed with leather, mixed with livestock supplies. I don't know. There's something about that place. I, I love it. And I went in to get some spray that you spray on the lawn to kill the weeds, uh, but I didn't need like 250 gallons of this, so they didn't have anything in a smaller increment. So I was getting ready to walk out with nothing, 
And then I saw this at the checkout station. I'm not a magazine guy, but I picked this up, and there was something about this magazine, even the paper that it's printed on, I was drawn to this. It's called American Frontiersman. Again, I'm not a, a magazine guy, but uh, it is Father's Day. My kids are in the room, so hint, hint, I kind of like this one. And I went through it and uh, read several of the articles. Let me give you an idea of some of what we're looking at here. Uh, here's an article, Top 10 Mountain Man Books Ever. I read that article. Uh, the Revenant is one of these mountain men books that they're recommending. They don't go into movies, but for my money, Jeremiah Johnson has to be at the top of that list. Then here's an article. I read this one cover to cover. I, I appreciated this article. The Life and Times of the Famous Buffalo Hunters. And then it lists a few. Wyatt Earp, bet you didn't know he was a buffalo hunter. Bat Masterson, of course, Buffalo Bill Cody. That was an interesting article. It's filled with uh, helpful information, like here's one, a uh, title with a question mark, a 410 pistol for turkeys. I read that and actually learned something. I appreciated that article. So here's the point that I'm trying to make. This era of American history, 1860s, 70s, 80s, 90s, the wild, wild west. Our heritage as Americans glorifies the opposite of what Jesus challenges us with today. If you've got your Bibles and you want to open them up, we're in Matthew chapter 5. The title of today's message is Swearing and Getting Even. How's that for a Father's Day message? Swearing and getting even. You might want to grab the app if you're not, uh, if you don't have your Bible with you. You could open up the Venture app. We've got some notes in there. Let's talk first of all about swearing. Matthew chapter five, verse thirty-three. Jesus is speaking to a group of people, and he says this again. You heard that it was said to the people a long time ago, "Do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you've made to the Lord." But I tell you. Do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it's God's throne, or by the earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. I looked in the mirror the other day and realized maybe I can't, but I think the pandemic can. I'm getting a few more of those. Simply let your yes be yes and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. So, let's talk about swearing. It's Father's Day. Many Christian dads live with regret in this area. Maybe at some point they've missed the nail of the head that they're driving and they smash their thumb and then they regret the word choice that comes out of their mouth. Maybe especially after noticing that one of their kids was just there and witnessed that and heard it saw this potty language coming out of their mouth. I, I wrestle with this sometimes, actually. In typical life, I don't really wrestle with four-letter words. I mean, from the pulpit, I'm never tempted to cuss. You don't, if you're in my office and I'm praying with you and encouraging you, I don't typically wrestle with four-letter words coming out of my head. But something, something happens if you put a hammer in my hand. It releases some part of my brain. I'm not sure what's going on there. I, I grew up on a farm uh, years ago, and I spent time around uh, men that used those words. You put a hammer in my head, something is unleashed. And years ago, 
uh, we lived in Bloomington, down by Lake Monroe, and uh, we were in kind of a, a country subdivision. And, and, and a friend of mine grabbed me at church one Sunday morning, and he said, hey, listen, he was, he was down there framing up some houses. This is back pre-2007, 2008, before the housing market crashed. Our neighborhood had been built out maybe 20 years before that, but only half of it. And they were building houses like crazy during that era. Perhaps you remember that. And he was down there framing up houses, and he had done two or three, and he had some leftover lumber. And he said, listen, would you like some lumber? I leaned in. Yes, please. You've got my attention. And he said, well, tell you what, here's the garage code. Help yourself. It's there. The next week, he comes and finds me, and he kind of surprised look on his face. He says, uh, you took all of the lumber. And I said, I thought, my first thought was, oh, no, did I cross the boundary here? And I said, I'm sorry, I'll bring, I'll bring back what you, whatever you need. He said, no, 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 thanks. You're doing me a favor. I needed to find a way to get rid of it. Of course, now that's gold. If you've tried to shop a two-by-four lately, that's literally worth its weight in gold. Um, but he said, I'm just curious, what are you going to do with all that lumber? I mean, it was like some big dimensional lumber, like two-by-twelves and stuff. And I said, listen, I'm going to build the most over-engineered yard barn you've ever seen. And I did, like giant two-by-twelves, ripped some of those down to frame it up, but some of them became the floor joists. It was so strong, I could have parked my car on top of this yard barn. It was awesome. We took that summer, and the kids were out there helping, helping me, and I'll never forget the day. It's like in my brain. It was a beautiful, sunny day, and I'm teaching the kids to swing a hammer, and um, I'm holding the nail. You know where this story is going. Tap, 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 and then he takes a swing. And I made the mistake of, I had handed him a framing hammer, and it had like a dimpled head on it, missed the head, hit my fingers, blood immediately, and I'm dancing around, ah, and the word comes out of my mouth. I simultaneously, simultaneously screamed like a girl and cussed like a sailor. And I'll never forget that look on his face. So let's talk about swearing. And as we do, let me issue you a caution. Self-imposed shame over potty language is appropriate. At least it was for me in that moment because at that point in time in my life, I had been walking with Jesus for quite some time. I felt shame appropriately so. But here's the caution. Don't measure somebody with the Jesus ruler who doesn't know him. And here's the operative word. Yet. They have not yet began, begun to measure their lives against the standard that Jesus sets. So don't you do it either. I want to talk with you about uh, nice boys and lost boys. Because all too often in the church, we expect lost boys to act like nice boys. Just get used to this because over the next several months, you're going to hear me talking an awful lot about that parable where Jesus talks about leaving the 99, the good shepherd. We know him as Jesus. There's 99 sheep that have been found. These are good church people. The shepherd leaves the 99 and goes after the one. Why? Because he's lost. He's lost. And he's terrified. And while he's out there doing what lost sheep do, he picks up some of the customs of other lost sheep. Here's the deal. All too often, the 99 impose the standard on that one, the ruler that they use to measure themselves. This is a profound problem. 
I grew up in a culture that taught me, a Christian subculture that taught me you don't smoke, you don't drink, you don't chew, you don't go with girls that do. A few years ago, the church that I was serving at that point in time, there was a guy named George, and he kept coming up to me in the lobby at the church anytime he saw me. Or if he'd bump into me in the worship space, he'd come up and say, listen, you guys have been talking about investing and inviting. I've got a neighbor. And I've been walking across the street, and I've been doing things intentionally with him. I have been investing in my neighbor who has become my friend. He's a little rough around the edges, Pastor. He was giving me a warning. He said, but I can't wait to bring him to church, and I think he's getting close. I'm looking forward to that. He kept telling me this. I mean, it was like months of this conversation. Well, there was one weekend I happened to be the one preaching that weekend, and I'll never forget, before the service started, George brought his friend up to me and said, this is so-and-so. He's my neighbor. And then he takes a step backwards, and he's kind of giving me one of these, like, this is the guy I've been telling you about. And there's a little bit of a, like a, a, an undercurrent of this, don't mess this up for me, buddy, because I'm deeply invested in this process. Well, service is done, sermon is done, I'm out in the lobby, slapping high fives, shaking hands. George comes walking to me, but his friend outpaces him, and he's got his hand out. And he looks at me with a big old grin on his face, middle of the lobby in the church, and he hollers out real loud, hell of a sermon, preacher. (laughs) All right, hadn't heard that one for a little while. Can I just say this, how refreshing that is. Refreshing. Because we don't usually talk like that, because we're found, right? The 99, we have a a ruler that we hold up against one another. It's a Jesus ruler. But I love having folks who join us, who are not yet measuring their lives to that standard. I loved hearing that language even that day in the lobby, and I loved even more a few months after that, getting to celebrate that guy's baptism. And watching him begin that discipleship journey that God was calling him on. All too often, we expect people to clean up before they come to Jesus. No. That happens as they commit to following Jesus and as they grow in their love and their devotion to Jesus. Discipleship, by the way, we get this from the disciples and their interaction with Jesus. See if this doesn't track for you. Discipleship discipleship happens when we start walking with Jesus, not before. It was that case with the original disciples, right? When they started walking with Jesus, that's when they started breathing the dust of the rabbi and becoming more and more like him. This is important to recognize. Here's the question. Is it possible that we, and I'm including myself in this, is it possible that we're putting a vibe out that people should clean up before they're welcome here? If so... If you're doing that, well, what are you going to do about that? And is it possible that we don't have enough of the one? If we're the 99, is it possible that we don't, that we, I don't hear enough of those words around here? Because we haven't invested enough. We haven't invited enough. The found need to go after the lost. Let me make this statement. In this passage that we're studying through this whole summer series, Jesus is preaching to the choir. You know what this means. You hear that phrase, you're just preaching to the choir. That's what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain. Remember I've said I believe those two sermons are the exact same sermon from the same location. If you were here last week, go ahead and pull out your map again. 
This is the Sea of Galilee. We talked about this last week. And if this is the Sea of Galilee, we'd put the Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Plain about right here, this side of the Sea of Galilee. This is the Jewish side of the lake. This is the Gentile side of the lake. And if you were here last week, remember we said, Jesus said, you're supposed to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world. And Jesus even uses this metaphor. He's pointing over here across the lake to the Gentile side of the lake when he says, you're the light of the world. So shine your light toward dark spaces. That, hey, he said, hey, 99, go after the one. And then he modeled it, right? He fed 5,000 people up here on the Jewish side of the lake, and then he fed 4,000 over here on the Gentile side of the lake. And rowing back across the lake with his disciples, he said, listen, what we do for us, we do for them. Shine your light in dark spaces. I heard a story one time about a preacher who preached a sermon. And that week after the sermon was done, somebody walked up and said, hey, preacher, great message. Then the next week, he got up and he preached, and that same guy came and found him in the lobby and said, hey, thanks, uh, but didn't you preach that exact same sermon last week? The preacher just said, yep. And then the third week, the guy walked up, and, up to him and said, hey, I, I'm taking notes each week. You've preached the same sermon now three weeks in a row. Yeah, the preacher said, but, but you haven't started doing it yet. You haven't started taking that message and applying it into your life. And so I'm going to preach the same sermon until we all begin to do this together. Can I preach to the choir with a slightly heretical statement? I don't know if you left last week and you thought, man, maybe I need to do that. I need to put that into action. Well, let me make this statement. Hey, choir, I don't need another Bible study Slightly heretical statement, right? Especially to the 99 inside the church. I don't need another Bible study because I am already, I already know way more than I'm willing to be obedient to. I already know way more than I'm willing to be obedient to following Jesus in. Maybe I don't need another Bible study as we march through the Sermon on the Mount this summer as we're inside. And as we're outside, we look at the Sermon on the Plain. We need to channel the spiritual application of the book of James. James chapter 1, verse 22, he says this, But don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourselves. This is exactly what Jesus is saying here on the Sermon on the Mount. He's preaching to the choir and he's saying, listen, from time to time, y'all over here on this side of the lake, you were born into this thing. You've been good little Jewish boys and good little Jewish girls since you were born. And then he says over and over again, you've heard it said, but I tell you. He's saying the choir needs to hear this sermon again because you're not doing it yet. Well, where did he say that? You've heard it said, Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 33. This is what we just read. Again, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths that you've made to the Lord. Which begs the question, where and when did you hear it said? Well, you won't find that quote anywhere directly in the Old Testament. There's a decent chance that what Jesus is quoting here is actually kind of an intertestamental document, like a, a rabbinical teaching, where they took some passages from the Old Testament and synthesized them into that 
kind of colloquial statement. They probably took passages like Leviticus chapter 19 and Numbers chapter 30 and Deuteronomy chapter 23 and even Zechariah chapter 8 verse 17 because the Old Testament clearly emphasizes that oaths have a binding character to them. Here's the point. This passage is really not about swearing. Not the way that we think of it anyway. What it is is it's a caution against oath-taking. It's a caution against saying, well, I swear, I pinky swear, I swear on my mama's grave, or in the passage, we see it here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 34, it says, do not swear at all, either by heaven, by the earth, by Jerusalem, by your head. Well, what are we supposed to do? Well, Jesus makes it very clear in the very next verse, verse 37, he says, simply let your yes be yes, and let your no be no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. What this is a call to here is a call to honesty. To put it in terms of the Wild West, this is just plain speak. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Dads, since it's Father's Day, let's talk about this for a bit. Have you ever heard of the organization called All Pro Dads? Perhaps you remember Tony Dungy, Indianapolis fans from years ago. He had a hand in that early days of that organization, All Pro Dads. My kids and I have fond memories of that era of their elementary school days at Hazeldell Elementary in Noblesville. We get up early morning, we go for a Chick-fil-A breakfast, and then we sit down and we do some bonding together with that organization, All Pro Dads. We'd have some life lessons before class, and we'd usually do that about once a month. So, I went to their website this past week, allprodads.com, and they had an article there I want to share with you, 10 ways to teach your children to be honest. Because this passage is a call to honesty, plain speak. If you're a dad or a mom or a grandma or a grandpa, if you have influence over young people, you probably want to write these down. Number one, reward the truth. As parents, we're often quick to scold, right? Sometimes we aren't always so quick to praise. So here's the challenge. Reward honesty with loads of praise and hugs. It'll build self-confidence and reinforce positive behavior. Plus, a child can never get too much love. Number two, speak the truth. Teach your kids that they don't have to give false compliments. If they don't have a kind word to say, teach them how to control their words and just say nothing at all, right? However, we should always be able to find something, to positive, something positive to say about anyone. How about number three? Say the hard truth. Upholding morals is more important than avoiding hurting somebody's feelings who's out of line. Wrong is always wrong. For instance, your son's best friend is cheating on tests and your son has become fully aware of this. He has a duty, you should teach him, to go to his friend and advise that friend to quit. He's hurting himself and he's cheating the others who have honestly studied. If he refuses, then your son would have to tell the teacher about what's going on. This is the hard truth. Number four, model the truth. I love this axiom. When we get in the habit of telling small lies, it leads to a habit of telling big lies. As is always the case, you're the role model. If you're the parent, if you're the grandparent, if you're, if you're the adult in that child's life, you're the, the role model. If you don't want your children to hear you telling a lie, don't do it. Live by the truth. If your children see you telling even harmless white lies, then they'll feel like it's okay to lie as well. 
When would we get in the habit of telling small lies, it leads to a habit of telling big ones. So put some thought and some initiative into telling and seeking the truth all the time. Number five, don't put them, the kids, to the test. It's tempting to test them, but try to avoid asking questions that give your child the chance to not be honest. I wrestle with this. I did when they were little, and I probably still wrestle with this today. For example, if you saw your daughter spill red juice on the couch, there's no need to ask, well, did you spill your juice on the couch? This leads to her, her to believe that maybe she has a way out of this and could possibly blame somebody elsewhere. Just tell her to clean it up. She'll have enough opportunities to tell the truth about something else. Number six, give consequences. We all sin. Even children do. They'll lie to you, and you will eventually catch them. It's important that there be consequences for their actions, so appropriate discipline should be carried out and followed through with. Make it so it's not worth it to lie. Number seven, correct mistakes. Catching your kids being dishonest is a great opportunity to simply teach them. Ask them why they felt like they needed to lie to begin with. Explain how lying hurts relationships because it causes mistrust and trust is very difficult to earn. Talk to them about what they could have done differently. Number eight, follow through on promises. You, if you want to be trusted, keep your promises. Teach your children to be people who consider their word sacred. Their word is their bond, right? When they give it, they don't break it. The best way to teach this, of course, is by modeling it yourself. Number nine. Take care of other people's stuff. Possessions can create all kinds of problems. The best policy is to teach a child early on that what they have belongs to them and what other people have belongs to that person. It's not okay to borrow a game and never return it. This is a form of not telling the truth. It's awesome to share, but the item must always be returned. And last but not least, find honest friends. I love the phrase, if you show me your friends, I'll show you your future. If your child's friends lie and cheat, well, it's a matter of time, so will they. But if your child's friends are understanding and honest, your son or daughter will be that much better off. Keep an ear out for any of your children's friends who lie and use that as an opportunity to teach your own children. So here's a question. Have you taught your children to be honest? Are you modeling oath-keeping yourself? Or have they witnessed you violating Matthew chapter 5? Every once in a while, it's important to preach to the choir, right? Let's take that question one step further. What about culture at large? What about your neighbor? When your neighbor sees you, or when your coworker, maybe your boss, sees you, or when that person in the grocery store sees you and they saw you had a Christian bumper sticker or you're wearing a Christian shirt, when they see you, do they see Jesus? Do they see somebody who's not breaking their oaths? They're living by good, plain speak. Let your yes be yes and your no, no. Okay, let's talk about getting even. Jesus has strong words to say on this topic. This is a difficult teaching to live by. And I would, I would suggest to you that our country has been wrestling with how to do this for a very long time. Contrast the Wild West 
with what Jesus says here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. This is an Old Testament teaching. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Remember, I've been saying that the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain, I believe, are the same sermon preached from the same location. And I want to show you right now the parallels between Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount, and Luke chapter 6, Sermon on the Plain, which it says this. But I tell you, this is Jesus speaking here, but I tell you who, who hear me. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on one cheek... Turn to him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks you and anyone who takes what belongs to you. Do not demand it back. The OK Corral would have a very different story if they followed this teaching. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. Again, he's preaching to the choir. He's saying, those of you who live on this side of the lake, the people who live over here, you 99, that one over there that's lost, those sinners, well, they even live by a moral code. Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Again, even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. This is a difficult teaching. This is countercultural living. This is not easy to live by. But it has great impact potential. Then your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High because he, God, is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful to you. Here's what he's asking. You choir that's living over here on this side of the lake, the 99, looking down your noses at the one. What sets you apart? What makes you so different from those that are living over on this side of the lake? What makes you different? Man, those westerns that I watched as a kid, those heroes of the Wild West that I mentioned that I was reading about earlier in the magazine, they didn't live by the code that we just heard Jesus teach on. They lived by a very different code, right? And here's the deal, that has been profoundly shaping in our culture today. Our culture has been teaching us a very different ethos for a very long time now. And this is a difficult pill that Jesus is serving up here for Jesus' followers to swallow. And I've got to be honest. I get it. This is deeply ingrained in me as well. Pick your axiom that comes from our culture. How about this one? If you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. You've heard that one, I'm sure. I think we could even write a song about that. How about this one right here? Give them a taste of their own medicine. This is part of what we live for as Americans, right? How about this one? If you allow yourself to be used, you will be trampled. Don't turn the other cheek. Come on. 
Only sissies do that. What about this one? Be a good Samaritan and not a good doormat. Boy, that's got even a little bit of a Christian ring to it, doesn't it? I've gone back and forth on this passage my whole life. What's it mean to turn the other cheek? And I've got to be honest with you. I've wrestled with this. Because that teaching smacks square against those early playground lessons that I learned. If I turn the other cheek, they're going to walk on me. I've got to draw a line, a boundary somewhere. I'm almost finished with an interesting read. This is making its rounds right now in Christian circles. Perhaps you've heard of this book. It's called Jesus and John Wayne. Very interesting book. By the way, can I say this? I don't agree with everything that the author is saying there in that book. But I think that a thinking Christian can read through something and parse it and learn something from just about anything. This book has pushed me, it stretched me, because it's talking about the childhood church that I grew up in. And it's telling about the ethos of our culture that I grew up in and how shaping it's been on the Christian subculture. And where we have blown our witness, perhaps, and what has led up to that. It's challenged me. It's pushed me. There's a, a, a review I read this past week, Beth Moore. Perhaps you've heard of the author and the speaker, Beth Moore. She writes about the book, uh, the author's astonishing gifting was in the way that she took 1,000 puzzle pieces and fit them together. She says, I don't swallow books whole, but the evidence for much of what she's written is staring us in the face. It's an interesting read. If you're bold, you might want to read it. Jesus and John Wayne. I went back this past week, John Wayne, that rugged American hero, and I was thinking about the Sermon on the Mount and turned the other cheek, and I found some John Wayne quotes. I think these are interesting. thought I'd share them with you right now. Forgive your enemy, but remember the, and then I just talked about swearing, so I can't say it out loud. That's been whitewashed. But remember the guy's name. Interesting. Turn the other cheek? Maybe not. What about this one? Help someone when they're in trouble, and they will remember you when they're in trouble again. That's very different than go the extra mile. That's very different than if they take your cloak, give them your tunic as well. How about this one? This one scares me because it's a threat. Many people are alive only because it's illegal to shoot them. That's not turn the other cheek, right? This leads me to a thought-provoking question. Is it possible? This is not the way Jesus is calling me to live. Is it possible that Jesus meant exactly what he said? Turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile. Give them your tunic as well. To turn the other cheek is radical teaching. Is it possible that Jesus meant exactly what he said? This is creative nonviolence. This is creative counterculture living. And when the 99 on this side of the lake live that way, they get the attention. Of the, they've earned the attention. They've earned the right to be heard by this group of people over here. Is it possible that Jesus meant exactly what he said? Here's the thing. This is unconventional thinking. But actually, this is not a time for conventional. I mean, coming out of a major global pandemic, 
This is not the time for conventional. Conventional, this is what this word means. It's an adjective for things that are normal, ordinary, and following the accepted way. Who really wants to live like that anyway? Ho-hum. This word describes what is typical and ordinary and that which follows accepted standards of behavior and taste. I don't want to live a conventional life. What's the definition of insanity? Doing the same things in the same way and expecting different results if the 99 continue to live the way we always have. Will we reach the one? Uh-uh. Unconditional. This is a time for unconventional. Coming out of a global pandemic, this is a time to live unconventional. Do you remember the challenge from last week? Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good deeds. Why? So that they'll praise your Father in heaven. You're a lighthouse. The 99 that lives on this side of the lake, we're supposed to shine our light to dark spaces. Did you do that this past week? Are you doing that? Are you living that way right now? You heard Robin talk about this earlier. Next week, we've got our block party, June 27th. Who can you invest in? Who can you invite to join the 99 going after the one? In what ways, in unconventional ways, is Jesus calling us to step out into that space? In what unconventional means? Maybe you need to walk across the street. Maybe you've got that neighbor who screams like a girl when they smash their thumb and then cusses like a sailor. And there's something about that makes you just a bit uncomfortable, but unconventional, right? Walk across the street. Lean into that opportunity. Unconventional places, perhaps. Where is there darkness in the world that you live in? And as a lighthouse, God is calling you to shine a bright light that direction. Would you stand up with me? What if? What if the summer of 2021 is an opportunity in your life? What if you, like Esther, are here for such a time as this? Do you remember Esther, that beauty queen that God used in unconventional ways, through unconventional means, in unconventional places, and he used her to redeem people for him? Next week we have an opportunity. Don't miss us. Again, 10 a.m., one service out here on the lawn. I'm going to be talking about the value of planting. And I'm going to be preaching a message with your friend, your coworker, your neighbor, your loved one in mind. Would you see this as an opportunity? Unconventionally, would you unapologetically go after them? Would you bow your heads? Let's pray. God, thank you for your love that drives the 99 to go after one. Give us unconventional thoughts. Even this week, spur us toward action. We want to live our lives out loud well for your God. And it's your name in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I can't wait to see you next week. If you're here today and you're wrestling with something, you just want to talk and pray with somebody, I'll be hanging out underneath the cross. Everybody else will see you at 10 a.m. next week. Bring your swimsuit. It's going to be fun out there. See you.